From St. Luke's Gospel, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Good morning, friends. I'd say we dodged a bullet this past week. What do you say? Thanks be to God. We were here last week. Many of you were here, actually. We had about 100 folks here praying and worshiping Jesus and thanking him and praying for our Bahamian brothers and sisters. And uh, I think it's a good thing, actually, to pray. And I'll tell you why. Because it actually teaches you a lot about yourself. It teaches you something. And it teaches you at least three things, maybe more. But when you pray, it tells you three things, three things about your own heart. First that you believe that God exists and that he hears you in the history of human thought. That's pretty big, actually. And not only that, that you believe he exists and he hears, but he actually cares about you. And then finally, prayer implies in your own being that you believe that God can actually calm the storms of your life, whether they're named Dorian or they're named financial heartache or medical conditions or family relationship issues, or fill in the blank, man. Anybody here got a storm besides Dorian in their lives right now? Yes, you do. I got a funny story, actually. So on Monday, uh, we, were pre- we were here last Sunday, and then Monday morning, Kathy and I woke up, had coffee, and decided to go down to the beach to see the impending doom. And uh, we went down to the boardwalk with our dog, and we're just walking along there, minding our own business. And... Uh, A car pulls up, and this woman gets out with a camera woman behind her, baseball cap, red jacket, and she says to me, excuse me, are you a local? And I thought, well, I guess I am a local now, actually. (laughs) I said, yes, I am. She said, well, I'm with CBS Channel 12 from West Palm Beach. Would you mind if we interview you on TV? I said, no, not at all. No problem. I was wearing a baseball cap and a T-shirt. I wasn't wearing a collar, obviously. Anyway, so she says to me uh, a couple things, what I thought about the storm, that I think that the, uh, that the waves would crash and erode, erode the beach. I said, well, there is a Category 1 storm coming, so I'm thinking probably yes, but I'm no meteorologist. And then she said to me, and this is when I knew that the Lord had placed me there for a reason, she said, uh, so, tell me, how did you, what did you do to prepare for the storm? And I said, well, I said, my name is Father Chris Rodriguez, I'm the rector of Trinity Episcopal Church here in Vero Beach, Florida. And my congregation and I gathered yesterday and we prayed and we thanked Jesus for his protection and we asked for his, his continued uh, provision for our Bahamian brothers and sisters and we asked the Lord to continue to provide for us and protect us from the storm. And she looked at me and a friend of mine saw the video, that, and he said, you know, she looked at you like, you know, I've heard about people like this before, but I've never actually seen one. Like Sasquatch, right? <laughs> it's a great opportunity. Always be ready, brethren. Always be ready. First Peter 3.15, always be ready. But here's the thing I want to talk about today. I want to talk about crises, crisis, crises, whatever. And and I want to look at these as not necessarily a bad thing, but it actually is a good thing, a gut check. Because when we are confronted with crises in our own lives, we are, by definition, confronted with things that we cannot control. 
And whether that crisis and that threat is called Dorian, or it's called whatever is in your life right now, crises always force us to confront the obvious conclusion, which is this. It forces us to confront how powerless we really are. And, and I'll submit this to you as Christians. If you are wise and smart, and somebody challenges you in this regard, crises can be incredibly helpful to grow. They are opportunities to learn to trust Jesus. You know, the sad thing is most people look at Jesus like a, uh, some sort of a supernatural fire extinguisher, right? Break glass in an emergency kind of thing. But, but you know, crises actually give us an opportunity to realize just how tenuous life is and really just how little control we really have even every other day of the week that we really don't have a whole lot of control over our own lives. And more importantly, which I'm going to dive in on today, this is big. Crises force us to ask the big questions in our life that sometimes we'd rather neglect or just don't really think about. Where is my center? Where is my core? Where, is, where are my guts? Where is my sense of identity? Where, frankly, is my security? People say all the time, oh, everything little, everything's going to be okay. Well, that's a stupid thing to say, actually, unless you believe in God, that he hears you, that he cares about you, and they can actually do something about it. What assurance do you really have? Now, it, may like, it might not sound like this this morning, but that's exactly when Jesus talks about hating your brothers and your mothers and your sisters and your own life. This is actually exactly what he's talking about. Jesus is not inviting you to the, uh, the latest edition of the Dr. Phil show, right? He's actually saying to you, look, here's the deal. You've got to remember where your real security lies and then choose accordingly. Two things I want to talk about today. I want to talk about the, the cost of following Jesus. That's number one. And secondly, our decision to follow simple, right? <laughs> the cost to follow Jesus and our decision to follow. Our text today, point one, our text this morning occurs immediately after the text from last week. If you were here last week, um, you'll know that Jesus talked about heaven like a wedding feast. It was a parable. And everybody loves weddings, right? Weddings are fun. It's a party. Woo! And what we discovered last week is that Jesus says, look, Heaven is like a wedding feast which you are invited to. And then the very next thing he says is, but you've got to hate your family. Unless I hate my family, let me get this straight, Jesus. Uh, so I get the wedding part. I get the party thing. I get the, I get the theme of being invited to a great big feast. Okay, that, that resonates with me, but you're telling me that unless I hate my family, I can't follow you? Dude, What's that about? Listen again to what he says. I'm going to unpack it for you. Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, hate is a loaded word, right? How do you even define hate? Resentment? Loathing, contempt. In our own culture, we talk frequently about hate speech, whatever that is, 
We talk about hate crimes. My retort is, well, really, kind of all crimes are in some sense hate crimes, right? I mean, but that's actually not what's going on here. See, here, this is an important nuance that you've got to understand for this to make any sense. There is a Jewish figure of speech, an idiom, which goes like this. I love this, and I, but I hate that. It simply means this. Listen, this is important. That you love this thing more, a lot more, than that thing. For example, if you know when uh, St. Paul quotes Malachi chapter 1, 2, and 3, Paul says, quoting Malachi, who's quoting God, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, God doesn't hate. And actually, the point is, of course, in the story, is that the idea here is that it's a Jewish idiom of loving something over and against something else. God does not hate Esau, but he does prefer Jacob. And the point Jesus is making is that unless, this is big, unless you love God more than your brother and your sister and your mother and your father and your own life, you can't be his follower. Now, I'll be honest with you, that still sounds a little rough for me. Anybody here, does that bother anybody? It makes me want to squirm. Kind of does, I'll be honest with you. Because I love my wife and I love my family. And, and, and I'm kind of, part of me wants to say, you know, Jesus, thanks, but no thanks. But hang on a minute, there's more, there's more to it. Let me show you. Remember the context, the context. Not only is Jesus using an idiom, he is speaking to first century Jews. First century Jews were agrarian, which means that you eat what you grow or you kill, Right? So if you are having a family, one of the goals of having a family was not just to sit around and watch Netflix at night. Part of the goal of having a family is your children would actually tend the farm and milk the cows and shear the sheep and, I don't know, go fetch the goats. Whatever they do, pick the berries. In other words, your family, listen, this is big, your family was your sense of security. Your family was who would take care of you in your old age. If you are a man or a woman without a family, you are a dead man. So what Jesus is actually saying is a little more profound than what you might actually hear. And that is that in this context, hating your family is not just it doesn't mean hating them. It means it's a proxy. It's a proxy for everything in your life that you lean on for security. In other words, what he's saying is, look, unless you, unless you put everything else, in, everything else aside and put me first, you cannot be my follower. Let me ask you a question. You ready? Let me ask you a question. What is, this is a biggie, and it might sting, but I'm going to ask you. What is the most important thing in your life? Because that's really what he's asking. That's really the question. What's the, what's the one thing that most defines you? Your hopes, your aspirations, your love, your security? Maybe it is your family. I have a family, and God knows that I love them very, very much. I would take a bullet for any of them like that. What is the most important thing in your life? Because that most important thing, friends, it defines you. It makes you feel safe. Maybe it's your job which defines you, or your wealth, or your success, or your lack of wealth and lack of success. Maybe it's a relationship you have with a ch child or a spouse or a boyfriend or girlfriend 
Maybe it's the lack of a relationship that, you, that defines you. Maybe it's the influence you have. Maybe it's the influence that you don't have. My point I want you to see here, here's the, it's a biggie. It's a biggie. What is the most important thing in your life? What is it? How do you know? Two, two ways. First of all, I'll give you an example, because I fell for it. Uh, I was at a party not too long ago, a bunch of priests gathered around. I should have known better, man, and I just wasn't thinking. But at a party, and somebody said to me, so tell me about yourself. If you were at a party and someone said to you, tell me about yourself, what's the first thing you'd say? That is, friends, the most important thing in your life. Or at least it's the thing which you use to define yourself. And see, here's the rub, that being a Christian is about Jesus being your Savior, yes, but also your Lord. And to be a Lord means to be your king. It means to be number one. It means to be in your center, your core, your heart, your guts. That's my first point. The cost of following Jesus, of making him your priority, of making him your security. How you define yourself. How you define yourself with him at the center. Not because God needs you, because he doesn't, doesn't need me either, but because you need him, you see. You know, everybody, everybody has a God, little g. Every person has a God, the thing that defines them, the thing that they look to for security. Another way to maybe diagnose that in your own heart is what's the one thing that if you lost it, it would destroy you? Bam, there it is. And here's the problem is that all the little gods, all the little G-gods we have in our lives, the only one that will never fail you is the true God of heaven. The only God that can, in fact, steer the storms. The only God that can turn Dorian northward at the very last minute. He's the only God that can do what you're asking all your little G-gods to do for you. And all the people and places and things that we place in his way, and friends, we all do it. Your money, your job, your wife, your kids, they will fail you. They cannot not fail you because they aren't God. And so the cost of following Jesus, it's really not even a cost. It's really just a gut check and a thought. Is that the, the way you follow Jesus is you've got to put him first, man. He's got to be ahead of everything else even your own life, according to Jesus. Ahead of your family, your security, your identity, he's got to be ahead of it all. Can you do it? And the second question then is, well, if he is the head, if he is front and center, if he is the one who will take no proxies in his place, then the second point I want to look at today is the decision to follow him. You know, Jesus actually makes the case, which is obvious once you think about it, that you and I, any human being, can only have, by definition, one ultimate thing. We can have lots of and lots of important things. In fact, all the things that we make into our little G-gods are usually good things. Wife, kids, family, you name it. But every person only has one ultimate thing. And that is the God of your life. And Jesus says, he's it. Everything else plays second fiddle according to him. And he requires you, you and me, to make a decision to follow him daily. 
Let me give you an example from our epistle. Ready for this? Great stuff. So, we, let, we read the epistle today. The, in fact, if you didn't know this, you all read an entire book of the Bible today in our second lesson, Philemon, all 21 verses of it. In our, and the epistle of Philemon is all about making a decision to follow Jesus, and here's how it works. Paul writes a letter to Philemon, who's his friend, and Philemon is a Christian, and Philemon owned a slave whose name was Onesimus. Thank you, Mom, for not naming me Onesimus. <laughs> Onesimus, whose name means helpful or useful, actually. Onesimus is a slave. He runs away from Philemon, and he goes to St. Paul, and Paul converts him. And Paul says to Onesimus, the slave, Onesimus, I'm sending you back. And Paul writes to Philemon, the slave owner, who's his friend, and he writes the letter to Philemon, which you have in your bulletin, the entire letter, and he writes the letter, which he hands to Onesimus to deliver, actually, which is a terrifying idea. And Paul says to Philemon, Philemon, I am appealing to you for my child, Onesimus. Listen to this. I am sending him back to you no longer as a slave, but as a brother. So Philemon, he's got a decision to make, doesn't he? <laughs> am I going to follow Jesus or not? Am I going to do the right thing or not? Because if he takes Onesimus back as a freed man, a brother, he's going to take an awfully big hit, Philemon will, the slave owner, for two reasons. A, he's got to pay him. And B, and this might even be the worst of the two, he's going to be the laughing stock of the community. What person takes a slave back and treats him as a brother? Philemon, you are a fool, his friends would tell him. So Philemon's got a decision to make, and that's the letter that Paul's writing. But there's another dude in the story. His name is Onesimus. Imagine being Onesimus. And Paul hands him a letter and says, Onesimus, take this to Philemon, and hopefully, hopefully, he spares your, your life. Onesimus, who's apparently a pretty good runner, he ran away the first time, he's got a decision to make too, doesn't he? Friends, Christianity, being a follower of Jesus, is about making a decision daily. Because if you're like me, and you are, you have all sorts of distractions in your life that knock you off course, all sorts of little G-gods that if you're not careful, if you're not intentional and deliberate, those little G-gods, that family, money, house, success, whatever, will take first place if you're not careful. Jesus says, look, you got to be careful, man. you got to plan. you got to be ready. Listen to what he says. Which of you, if you're going to invade a country, would not sit down and count the costs? In other words, Christianity, friends, you've got to be frosty. You've got to be deliberate. You've got to be intentional. Talk is cheap. Is Jesus really your God? Is he really your core? Is he really your center? If not, then who or what is? And what are you going to do about it? Is Jesus Christ really the one who rules your life? Because something or someone does, what is it? You know, and the irony, of course, here's the great big irony in this whole thing, is that once you place Jesus front and center where he belongs, everything else actually kind of falls into place. All the little gods that we worry about kind of fall into place once you put Jesus where he belongs front and center. 
If Jesus is my Lord, then he is my go-to. When I have doubts and questions and concerns, I pray and I lean on him and I wait for direction. He's my go-to. He's my core, my guts. He's God. He's my center. If Jesus is your center, Jesus is my center, I know I am a better husband because I, am, I know what the Lord requires of me as a husband of my wife, Kathy. I am a better father because I know what God requires of me, how to make the right decisions and what to do when I blow it. I'm a better priest because I know what the Lord requires of me. He's crystal clear. And when I need guidance and direction, I lean on him and he gives it to me. I'm better with my money because I know it belongs to him. I tithe on it. Don't you see? Whatever you place as your ultimate, friends, whatever is your ultimate thing, drives all the decisions of your life. Is your ultimate Jesus? It's a gut check. It's a decision, friends, we must make daily. But the ball is in, as they say, your existential court. <laughs> who, or really, who or what really, really is your God? And are you ready to make a decision daily to be sure and put Jesus in first place where he belongs? Shall we pray? Father, we come before you this morning as men and women invited to the wedding feast, the promise that you gave to us of heaven. Jesus, we commit ourselves again to you today. We decide to follow you with all of our hearts. Remind us when we go astray. Give us your Holy Spirit to strengthen and encourage and challenge us. Help us and remind us to put nothing in front of you. Help us to live our lives with you at our center. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.